tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello, Tucson. I guess we're broadcasting in Tucson, where it's warm. Where I am, it is not warm. Here I am, just south of the Cheddar Curtain, which is what we call the Wisconsin border. Have you ever been Uh, in Tucson, Father Simon? I've been to Phoenix, but not Tucson. Have you been to Tucson, dear voice in my head? No, no, I've never been to Arizona. This is live. Ooh, I've never been. Arizona, Arizona is very nice. It's, it's, uh, if you like desert, it's, it's, I mean, it really is. It's, you know, it's, it's gorgeous. It, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff. I remember going through, uh, that part of the world, um, um, on a road trip many, many years ago, and I loved it. But let's, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about, you know, the Bible. So let's start with prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit that shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, all right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. Well, this is more of that John stuff. This is First John 5, uh, uh, verse 5 to 13. And as I said, John is portrayed in, in iconography with an eagle. <laughs> Oy. <laughs> Beagles, yeah, that song that must be played at every funeral, Beagles Wings, but moving along. Uh, John, he soars, and well, I plod. Yeah, John doesn't strike me as the most German of all the Gospels. (laughs) No, he doesn't. Well, was that live, your voice in my head? Oh, there. Well, actually, there are soaring Germans. There's Goethe and Beethoven and... And uh, but most of us Germans, we like a good umpa band. Let me tell well, you. We, it, I, <laughs> I was just going to say. I mean, aren't Germans are a little bit more literal, right? And and the, John is very poetic, and, and there's well, a lot to it, interpret. It, it's it's funny. You know, this of course is a is a stereotype, and it's my experience of Germanitude. But uh, German poetry is is gloriously mystical and high-flung, and that's why most of us Germans haven't a clue what it means. Now, my cousin Frank in Berlin, he loves good poetry and sends me much of it, but I, I'm I'm definitely more the the beer and oompa band type. <laughs> the, uh, uh, um, I've, I've assisted in the Corpus Christi procession back, back in uh, the maternal ancestral town. 
That's it. Yes, that kind of music. That's much more. That's much more the poetry of the average German. Well, I, I participated, and they always have an umpa band playing hymns. And let me tell you, you have not heard Tantum Ergo played until you've heard it played on a tuba. But moving along, let's get back to the Holy Scriptures. Yeah, this is this is beautifully high flown, and uh, uh, but you can understand it better if you understand it in the context. And admittedly, I have been. Uh, I have been emphasizing this a lot. I really, really believe that certainly the Gospel of John and the letters of John are written by the same person. I believe that. And I would suspect that the book of Revelation is, too. I have no reason to doubt it. Some of the early church fathers seem to be ambivalent about it, but uh, it's a strong tradition. But certainly the letters in the Gospel were written by the beloved disciple John, I think. And I think this is, uh, today we have an indicator. Well, first of all, who indeed is the victor over the world? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I, I get regularly flattened. Uh, no, no, no. Remember, let us use the strange Father Simon translation here. The one who trusts that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, if you learn to trust God and trust that Jesus really is who he claims to be, then you conquer the world to the degree that you trust you conquer, which is why I don't conquer that much. <laughs> I, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. So indeed, who indeed is the victor, the conqueror of the world? The one who trusts that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, I got nothing to worry about because Jesus is in control. He's the Son of God. Yeah, right. I say that all my life. Oh, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Well, let's move along. This is the one who came through water and blood, Jesus the Messiah. Not by water alone, but by water and blood. The Spirit is the one who testifies. So there are three, and the Spirit is truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Remember that, at least according to the Father Simon theory, that the Gospel of John was written to convince the disciples of John the Baptist, of whom John the Evangelist, the author of the gospel, was one at a certain point. Remember, he was following John the Baptist. John the Evangelist was following John the Baptist when John the Baptist said, don't follow me anymore, follow him. And he pointed to the Lamb of God. I believe that John the Evangelist wrote his gospel to convince other disciples of John the Baptist that Jesus was the Messiah and not John the Baptist. I've said that practically every day the past week. I also believe um, that John the Evangelist was a relative of Jesus. There's a strong tradition and, a, I believe, a real possibility that that was true. However, look at our Blessed Mother <laughs> And St. Elizabeth, our Blessed Mother, came from the tribe of Joseph, or rather of Judah. She also came from the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe, because she was a kinswoman to Elizabeth, who was from the house of uh, um, uh, Levi. She was, she was a daughter of Aaron from the priestly families. The people who fled to the to the who, who abandoned the temple because it was corrupt at the time of Christ uh, uh, 
were the Essenes and the different sects, the S-E-C-T-S, the different sectary groups in, in um, uh, the Dead Sea. They, they rejected the temple because it was corrupt, that, that the high priest was not uh, um, uh, from, descended from Zadok, and, and, uh, and the temple itself had been, had been taken over by Herod for political purposes. The temple was corrupt. They would have nothing to do with it. At the end of the Gospel of John, we see something very, very pointed, very, very, uh, very dramatic. That that the text says that the one who says this witnessed it, and his witness is true. I, I wonder if that is not a note put in by some of his disciples, John the Evangelist's followers. And what was he talking about? That out of his side there flowed blood and water. And they make a big deal out of this. Why? Because there was another thing out of whose side flowed blood and water. That was the temple. There would be rivers of sacrificial blood. They would be drained. There was an elaborate drainage system. They would come out into the Kidron Valley. I think that the the uh, the outlet was in the southeast corner, uh, flowing into the Kidron. And then they. I, I have read. Uh, I, I need to study a little more. But it seems that they actually flooded one of the courts of the temple to wash the blood down the drains. Huge amounts of water were used in sacrifice. So out of the side of the temple flowed blood and water. Out of the side of Jesus flowed blood and water. Jesus had talked about the temple of his body. Destroyed this temple in three days, I will build it up. That was one of the messianic expectations. That was one of the things the Essenes and the other uh, uh, baptizing groups were waiting for. The, the Messiah was going to purify the temple or rebuild the temple. He was going to uh, um, renew the priesthood and renew the monarchy. Those were three of the major expectations. So this, this is a huge thing in the Gospel of John, the, the water and the blood. Well, here we go. This is the one who came through water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water alone, but by water and blood. John saw this uh, on the cross. And then there are three, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Why is the Spirit in there? Because John the Baptist would have told his disciples that he saw the Spirit descending like a dove on Jesus at his baptism. So those three elements would have been very powerful, proof that the Messiah had come, that John the Baptist testified that the Spirit had descended on, on Jesus, and he was the Messiah. He had rebuilt the temple in his own body. The water and the blood showed that. So I think that's what's going on here. It's much more understandable if you understand, assuming I'm correct, which is quite an assumption, but assuming that... that um, uh, um, the, this gospel was written to the disciples of John the Baptist, and that the subsequent th thought, spirituality of John the evangelist, never quite left that amazing thing, the spirit, the water, and the blood. If we accept human testimony, the testimony of God is surely greater. The testimony of God is this. He's testified on behalf of his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has his testimony within himself. Remember, whoever trusts in the Son of God has his testimony within himself. Whoever does not trust God has made him a liar by not trusting the testimony God has given about his son. You see, when you put the word trust in, it, it really does change the tenor of this. And this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever possesses the son has life. Whoever does not possess the son of God does not have life. I write these things 
so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now remember, eternal does not mean on and on and on and on like me. It means timeless. You experience the timeless the timeless reality of God's love and know that it will last forever. You who trust in the in the name. And remember, I always translate name as authority. You who trust in the authority of the Son of God. Uh, okay. What does that mean? I remember somebody who uh, um, was a believer. Well, I don't know if he was a believer, but he was a, a Christian by name and participated in the life of the church and good fellow. And then he went to some Pentecostal meeting, got baptized in the Holy Ghost, as the we Pentecostals love to say. Um, which I kind of think may be a misnomer too, but meh. So <clears throat> he's, one of the things that amazed him was he had never felt the presence of God. Now, I don't think that feeling the presence of God means anything more than God is generous to sinners like me. But there is a certain knowledge that comes with experience. And he had never experienced the fact that he was living in this timeless realm, which you're living in, whether you know it or not, for good or for ill. And he called me not long after to say, I, I, I've come to believe you can really sense the presence of the Holy Spirit. Can you come to sense the presence of other spirits? And the answer is yes. In other words, he had been given a gift of the discernment of spirits. And, you know, we, we live in this in this, eter this timeless and spiritual realm, whether we know it or not. And John is saying, if you, if you trust Jesus, you can live well and safely in this world and in the unseen world, the invisible world. So uh, maybe that's even as mystical as John. Not quite. But this is, to the people to whom it was addressed, this was much more practical than it sounds. It was trying to emphasize the message at the end of, probably the end of John the Beloved Disciple's life to his fellow followers of John the Baptist. Jesus is the Messiah, not, not John. So, well, let's move on to the gospel. Let me see. Um, one mightier than I is coming after after me. I'm not worthy to stoop and loosen the thongs of his sandal. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Um, it happened in those days. Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee was baptized in the Jordan by John. And uh, on coming out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit like a dove descending on him. Now, in this text, it is the... Uh, uh, it is uh, Jesus who sees this. Why would Jesus see this? Why not? The father wanted to say, I love you, son. Um, he, he knew who he was. That's why we have the story of the finding in the temple. That was an incident in Jesus' life that um, indicates, at least the way I read it, that Jesus knew who his father was. Uh, um, but we see this in in... In, in different texts, um, uh, that uh, uh, let me see, I'm trying to find a text. Um, uh, uh, let me see where I, I believe. Oh gosh, I, I can't find the text I, I had, but in one text, it, it seems like John the Baptist saw it, and uh, um, in another text, it seems like Jesus saw it. I, I suspect they both saw it, and maybe other people. Uh, but this, this spirit like a dove, now remember, 
the word spirit means voice, or rather, the spirit means breath. Uh, by you can't speak without breath. A voice came from the heavens. You are my beloved son, and I am well pleased. So, well, I, oh, do I have? To, yeah, I do have a couple minutes. I want to go to um, the the alternate reading, which can be from Luke. It's the genealogy of Jesus. There's a genealogy of Jesus in Luke. There's a genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. Compare them. The genealogy of Luke goes from the present into the past. He was the son, as was thought of Joseph, son of Haley, son of Matthat, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janai, son of Joseph, son of Matthias. If you go to the the uh, Gospel of Matthew, the genealogy is in the very beginning, the first chapter. This is the third chapter of Luke, so people don't notice them. The genealogy of Matthew goes from uh, um, Abraham down to Jesus. And and if you get if you look at who's the great grandfather of Jesus, who is the grandfather of Jesus, uh, they're totally different families. Do it. Go to Matthew, first chapter. Find the 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 great grandfather of Saint Joseph, the grandfather of Saint Joseph, the father of Saint Joseph, and of course Saint Joseph himself. Then go to Luke and find the at the very beginning of the genealogy, third chapter of Luke. You'll find the, the, this is an important point, so I'm going to beat this horse a little longer, see if I can make it go faster. I'm kidding. No, don't any animal activists. I never beat horses, so don't call. But, um, or any other animal. Animals are nice. All right, moving along. You will find they are two completely different families. What? Then this, the Bible must be wrong. No, the Bible isn't wrong. One of them, the Matthew Gospel, says, begot, begot, begot. The Gospel of Luke says, uh, uh, son of, son of, son of. In the ancient world, adoption was very respected. And I have heard this even from Palestinian Christians, that when a family is about to die out, the, 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 the line that's about to die out will adopt a near relative. And this continues the family line. So there is a physical genealogy in Matthew and a legal genealogy in Luke. And this is told us in the ecclesiastical history of Eusebius of Caesarea, quoting Julius, Sextus Julius Africanus, an early Christian historian who lived, who actually visited the relatives of Jesus and said, what's with these genealogies? And they explained it to him. Now, the genealogies are kind of uh, abbreviated in spots, extended in other spots, which was done commonly in the ancient world. Those things were left out and things were put in, but they're essentially reliable genealogies. You can't know this without reference to Christian history and non-biblical texts. Thus, if you depend, if you believe that the Bible is completely self-explicatory, self-explaining, you have to admit that the Bible is mistaken. But we don't believe that. We're not sola scriptura people. We look at the context of history. We look at other documents. We look at the unbroken tradition of the church. And keep this in mind, because I got a letter, I hope to get to it today, which uh, deals with this very issue about abortion. That you cannot, sola scriptura is, an, I believe, an indefensible position. Because if you rely on sola scriptura without reference to what we have held and treasured for these 2,000 years plus, 
the Bible clearly is, is, is a book full of mistakes and errors and contradictions. If you look at the historians who have puzzled over these things and actually went to investigate, the Bible doesn't contradict itself at all. All right. That said, let us go to a break. We'll come back with letters. And, of course... We'll open the phones at 888-914-9149. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about The Catholic University for independent thinkers, at relevantradio.com forward slash you Dallas. Glory, 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 glory. Hallelujah, hallelujah. This should be the theme song for the Surrender Novena. Definitely. Definitely. I laid my burden down. I mean, I like the Surrender Novena. I've had people say, oh, it's so passive. You guys just, you know, you're just letting Jesus do everything. Yeah, I'd like to do that. So I must admit to saying the Surrender Novena more and more as I age. But that's not what we're here for. Let's go to letters. Oh, by the way, you can find the Surrender Novena online easy. All right. This is from Adelso. I gave this passage to someone, Jeremiah 1, 5. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. But they believe that life starts when, started when God gave breath, saying that unborn doesn't, doesn't have breathing. Uh, what should I prove to the, how can I, what can I say to this person? This person is, is caught in the sola scriptura trap. Well, the Bible doesn't say the Bible talks about the breath of life, doesn't talk about the child in the womb. Therefore, I can kill babies in the womb. Oh, well, that's, that's very convenient. First of all, children in the womb do breathe. They breathe amniotic fluid uh, in and out, but uh, they, uh, I believe, but uh, uh, they, they take in oxygen from through the placenta from their mother. So in that sense, yes, they're breathing. So, okay, fine. But that's not going to convince this person. They already want to believe that abortion is just fine and they can do what they want to do. However, if you are a sola scriptura person, there's no line in scripture that says abortion is forbidden. However, if you realize that sola scriptura is an intellectually and historically and logically indefensible position, and you look at the writings of the early church fathers, in the late first century, meaning like 90 AD, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, called the Didache, condemns abortion. The Apocalypse of Peter, which was written in the second century, uh, not by Peter, but uh, also condemns it. Early Christians considered abortion wrong in all circumstances. Early synods imposed penalties for abortion that were combined... Uh, um, was uh, that that were uh, especially when they were the result of of uh, of uh, sexual immorality, and on the making of abortifacient drugs, they condemned it. 
the early 4th century, that would be 300, Synod of Elvira imposed the denial of communion even at the point of death on those who committed the double crime of adultery and subsequent abortion. The Synod of Ancyra imposed 10 years of exclusion from communion on the manufacturers of abortion drugs and on women uh, um, who had conceived uh, by fornication. I don't want to go any further, but the Synod of Ancyra was uh, around 300, 315 A.D. So if you, when you say, no, no, the Bible doesn't forbid abortion, you're arguing with the people who, who were right there, people who were one long lifetime away from our Lord. So, well, it's just a tradition of the church. Yes, it's the tradition of the church, the consistently held belief for 2,000 years. But hey, you read the Bible your way, and you decide, well, I can kill babies. Fine. You're going to stand before God, and so am I. All right, that said, let us go to another letter. Someone wanted to ask me where I, if I can find the letter here. Um, the um, asked me about uh, to comment on the Shroud of Turin, to which I have a a. Uh, they asked me when did you come to believe that the Shroud of Turin really was uh, the real thing. This is uh, of course Nancy from Monterey, California. Well. I think I never doubted that it was the real thing. It was very challenging when the 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 now discredited carbon-14 tests came out. That was a rough day. But to look at it, it's just ridiculous to think it's anything but it was. I, Barry Schwartz, who's Jewish, with whom I had the privilege of a long phone conversation. He was the photographer on the Shroud of Turin Research Project, which was, when was that, 1978, I think? Um, uh he was giving a lecture on the shroud and his mother, a very Jewish lady, came and after, you know, this is Christian stuff and uh, it's pretty controversial. And so he asked his mother on the ride home, well, Ma, what do you think? And she looked at him and said, who else would it be? You think they'd keep a thing like that if it wasn't really Jesus? <laughs> I mean, you look at it and every time there's a new technology, photographic technology, it's already in the cloth. The cloth was a negative image. Uh gives a perfectly a perfect positive image of a crucified man the next one it had uh even pictures of the shroud not just the shroud itself pictures of pictures of the shroud have three-dimensionality in it according to the vp8 image analyzer then holographic uh holographs uh, were made more common and has holographic information in it It, the, the shroud isn't so much an image as it is a hologram uh, the the real image of the crucified man of the shroud floats about three feet above the shroud itself. Uh, it's an amazing thing. But you know what really clinches it for me? I mean, uh, the, the the coins on the eyes are good. And uh, one of my teachers, Father Phylus, an old Jesuit who taught in classics at Loyola where I studied, he, uh, uh, he very convincingly uh, pointed out that there were... Um, coins on the eyes of the man of the shroud. One of them was a, a, a coin minted by Pontius Pilate in 29 AD. Uh, it's very convincing. Now, at the time when I talked to Barry Schwartz, he thought, well, I, that he doubted that there would be enough photographic resolution um, to prove there were coins on the eyes of the shroud. But since then, I think photographic resolution's gotten better. So, But still, the real clincher of clinchers is that 
there is limestone dust all over the shroud. You know, the body of Jesus would have been laid on a lime, limestone shelf. Limestone has a very distinct chemical signature. You see, limestone comes from little critters in the water dying. And uh, what they've eaten uh, goes into the limestone. So limestone from every different place on earth has, has a very distinct chemical content. The, uh, the dust that's all over the Shroud of Turin, the, linen, the limestone dust that's all over the Shroud of Turin, comes only from a very small area in Jerusalem, near where the tomb of Christ is. That rock shelf has a very distinct kind of limestone. Uh, what is it? Uh, aragonite, travertine aragonite. I forget what it is, but that's the only place on earth where it has so, so far been found. Maybe it'll be found somewhere else, but the dust of Jerusalem is all over the cloth. This thing isn't a forgery. Whatever it is, it isn't a forgery. And it's been pretty conclusively proven that the the carbon-14 tests were done on an area that had been patched with a rewoven patch. So the dust, the dust really kind of made me think, hmm, this is the real thing. So, I mean, I never thought it wasn't. So I hope that answers your question, Nancy. And there's a wonderful site that uh, Barry Schwartz has uh, Shroud of Turin, uh, the Shroud of Turin website. It's easy to access on the web. She asks about books. There are a zillion of them, but uh, and they recommend good books on that Shroud website. So I, it's an amazing, amazing thing. So, all right, let me see here. I got one down here. Let me click. Um, okay, that's not the one. All right, this is I. Uh, okay, I have a neighbor. A young woman of 25 who I've known all my life. I also am the confirmation sponsor for her when she was 16. She told me her New Year resolution goal is that she wants to shave her head. I was curious. What would you say to this? The young woman is an aerospace engineer, a proficient reader, a ballerina, and comes from a loving family. Seems odd to me. Well, yeah. What would you say? I would say, why? Why do you want to shave your head? I think it would look cool. I think it'll look stupid. Be honest with her, you know. Uh, um, but don't don't say you shouldn't shave your head. Ask her why do you want to shave your head. Say, uh, people who do things like that really are in need of attention, and they 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 need to be listened to. Maybe she has lice. Then it's very wise to shave your head. But um, you know, she's she's crying out for. I mean. Uh, um, she's crying out for, for, for some kind of attention, I suspect. And so give it to her. Uh, you're, her, you're her convert. We, in the Spanish world, we call that, you know, I spent most of my life among Puerto Ricans and, uh, we call that the confirmation godfather or godmother. So you're her madrina de confirmación. You're her confirmation godmother. Be a good mother to her and say, I wouldn't say it's going to look stupid, but, um, I'd ask her why. Give her the attention that she needs, because the, the shaving of the head is not the issue. That's my suspicion on this. All right, and don't say, don't quote me saying, "Oh, does she have lice?" No, that's not. That's not nice. Okay, this is from Rita. Uh, that that. Uh, what is the original language of the Old Testament? Was it the same as the New Testament? No, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, with a little smattering of Aramaic. Uh, my friend said the Old Testament was originally Hebrew, but the New Testament was Greek. That's true. 
I also know Paul was a Roman, but was he a Greek too? Yes, he was. He was raised in a Greek-speaking city in southern Turkey. His first language would have been Greek and possibly Aramaic at the same time. I imagine in the house they spoke Aramaic. In the street they spoke Greek, just like people who speak Spanish and English. Finally, oh, okay. Uh, um, yeah, so he, Paul was a Jew. He was a Christian. He was a Greek. He was a Roman. He was Greek by culture, Jewish by religion and ethnicity, uh, and Christian by faith, and a Roman by legal citizenship. So St. Paul is the first member of our culture. We live in a Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian culture. At least we did when I got up this morning. I hope it's still true. Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian. St. Paul is the first person who was Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian. He's the founder of our culture, and he founded it on Christ. So, yes, another form of the name James is originally Jacob. Yes. How did that happen? It can't, well, do we have time for this? Oh, yeah, sure. I used to tell my students uh, that Latin evolved into Spanish and French and uh, Portuguese and Italian and Romanian and uh, a, a language spoken in Switzerland, Ladino. Um, and, and how did that happen? How does one language become another? Well, there is the, uh, um, <clears throat> the t time and alcohol principle of language development. Time does in the long run for language, what alcohol does in the short run, it slurs it, which accounts for French. They have very good wine. It slurs it. And so the Spanish name was Sankt Jacob. And then it became Santiago, which became uh, Iago, or, or, or it actually became Jaime because the J was pronounced as a J one time. So, so the Jacob became Jacques, it, it, a lot of time in alcohol. But these names evolved. So James is the name originally Jacob. In German, <laughs> despite all the beer, the name is still Jacob. Anybody who we call James in English is Jacob in German. And with that, important thought i'll let you go and we'll take a break and we'll come back with a word of the day Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth and virtue. Learn more about the Catholic University for independent thinkers at relevantradio.com forward slash you Dallas. You got to move. You got to move. You got to move. When the Lord get ready. You got to move. Well, you do. Otherwise, as the letter of the Hebrew says, your bones will bleach in the desert. When the cloud of glory moves on, you follow it. Or your bones will bleach in the desert. That's, that's in the Bible, the big book on the coffee table. But let's go to the word of the day. I have talked about it, but I will talk about it again. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Baptism. What does baptism mean? It simply means immersion, to immerse. And people talk about, oh, you got to get baptized in the Holy Ghost. And I think you should. However, let me warn you, it's not what most people think. Most people think of, of uh, 
being baptized in the Holy Spirit is an ecstatic experience, and it tends to be. It's an encounter with the third person of the Holy Trinity as a person. That's how I define it. But baptism in the Holy Spirit is not so much an experience as a, as a calling. The Holy Spirit shows up in your life, not so that you can get goosebumps on your goosebumps and feel good about you, but so that you might enter more deeply into a ministry. Now, let us talk about baptism in the Holy Spirit. John says elsewhere that his winnowing fan is in his hand. He will separate the grain from the chaff, and the chaff, he, the grain he will store in his barn, and the chaff he will throw into the fire. I remember many years ago traveling the old roads of Spain before the expressway came in. And we came to the top of a hill, and there were these farmers threshing grain. And we jammed on the brakes, jumped out of the car, and started taking pictures. And they said, what are you doing? We're getting a machine to do this next year. But I actually saw the old threshing of grain. What you do is you, you get a high, flat space on top of a hill that's a stone. It's, it's got to be a stone pavement on top of a hill. And then you pour the, 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 the wheat, the grain, on this. And what you do is you have a sledge, a, a kind of a sled that's big and heavy and wooden, and you have oxen, and you pick the fattest guy in the village to sit on this thing along with a bunch of stones, and the oxen pull the the uh, sledge around in a circle so that the grain is broken. And then what you do when you've got the grain thoroughly broken and lots of ox footprints on it, thank God he kills all the germs, uh, then you take this big winnowing fan that looks like a pizza oven shovel and you scoop up the grain, you put the, all this whole mess into a pile and you scoop up the grain, you throw it in the air. That's why it has to be high on a hillside uh, at the top of a hill. So there's a prevailing wind and slowly the prevailing wind separates the lighter chaff from the heavier grain. And you take, pick up the grain when you've got it nice and clean and then you store it and the chaff, eh, you burn it. So this is how John describes being washed in the Holy Spirit. There is crushing, there is separating, and there is burning. What? Yes, God wants to separate you and me from those things that are useless in our spiritual life. He does that by crushing, by threshing, uh, by, by winnowing, by separating, and then ultimately he completely does away with the chaff in our life. The baptism in the Holy Spirit, so-called, is an invitation to submit yourself to this process of purification. And let me tell you, if you are long in the, in the life of Pentecost, you will understand that's true. So it is, it is saying to the Lord, there's a wonderful old Pentecostal song, fill me, spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me, Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. In other words, in the world to be used, I feel so used. Well, when a Christian says, I feel so used, that's a good thing. So don't be fooled by, by the people who think that, that this this calling on the part of the third person of the Trinity is is all fun and games. On the contrary, it's a serious vocation to a consecrated life of holiness. And I think every Christian in one way or another is called to it. But that said, let us go to to phone calls. This is smart. Maxwell's smart. No, it's not. It's Bernadine. Bernadine, are you with us? What can I do for you from Las Vegas? Hi, Father Simon. Happy New Year to you. Happy My New Year. My question is this. 
Yes. Thank you. Um, can you please tell me when Jesus instituted the sacrament of penance? Where can I find it in the Bible? Oh, sure. Where was he? And why is it necessary um, to confess your sins to a priest? Oh, oh, no problem. I got a couple good biblical quotes for you. Um, he, he, he established the sacrament on, on uh, Easter Sunday. Uh, let me pull the exact. He said to the disciples uh, um, uh, in John twenty twenty three, uh, he says to the disciples, uh, when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it's withheld. That he established that that uh, uh, that sacrament on Easter. It's one of the first items of business when he appeared to the disciples. Uh, um, that, that, that it was so important to him. And then we read uh, in... Uh, um, uh, in James, I'm, of course, clicking here. If any one of you is sick, this this is very interesting. There's another letter I wanted to answer that deals with this. If any one of you is sick, he should. This is James 5.14. If is anyone among you sick, let them call the elders. And the word elder is presbyter, from which we get the word priest. I was ordained a presbyter. Uh, let them call the, uh, the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Uh, therefore, this is verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. Um, the, the implication of that, well, you have to confess your sins to, to the church. Uh, and I'm not talking about the institution of guys in black and white collars and black shirts. Uh, they're, they're, they have a role in this. But the, the bride of Christ, you need to go to, your, to the bride of Christ and honestly confess your sins. In the early church, confession of sin was public. You went before the entire community, which might have been 100 people, 200 people, and you said, I did this. And the bishop would give you a penance. And then you would go do the penance. It might take months and in certain cases, even years. And then you would come back and you would be given absolution, clothed in white again and receive Holy Communion once again. That was how confession was. Well, it got out of hand when more and more people were coming into the church. So the church limited it to the elders as representatives of that congregation. But the Bible says you must confess your sins to one another. So... If someone says, well, I don't confess my sins to a priest, say, well, who are you confessing them to? I confess to the Lord. Well, then you're not doing what the Bible tells you to do. Confess your sins to one another. So the priest is is um, taught how to do this in a way that is healing, because in the passage, it starts off with the priest. Is anyone of you sick? He should call the elders, that is the presbyters, the priests of the church, to pray over him. Uh, prayer offered in faith will restore the sick man and then confess your sins to one another. The, the, the implication is that the presbyter is the representative of the congregation here. Um, so does that answer the question? Oh, it does. Yes. There you go. Yeah, I'm well. sure someone's Thank saying, well, I confess so my sins directly to the Lord. Good. Then, then you're not doing what the Bible says. Good luck with that. 
You know, it's so funny. Okay. People will say, I only do what the Bible says. I confess my sins straight to the Lord. Read the book. Read the book. There's a lot in it that they don't know. <laughs> At any rate, so I hope that helps. Helps a lot. Thank you, Father. God bless. Simon. All right. Have a great and, weekend. And confession is wonderful. It's, it's good for the soul, as the scripture says. Let's go to John Reno. What can I do for you, John? Hi, Father Simon. Why do we celebrate the Feast of the Epiphany? Oh, because, oh, this is a good one. This is a good one. And we celebrate the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. Uh, they're all kind of in tandem. We celebrate Nativity, uh, the Epiphany, and uh, uh, the Baptism of the Lord. The word Epiphany means the manifestation. Jesus was manifested to the shepherds, to the, to the poor and simple on, on Christmas. He was manifested to the great and mighty. This is what the word epiphany means. He was manifested to the great and mighty at the visit of the Magi. And then he was manifested to, to the people of Israel and, and to his disciples and to John the Baptist on, the, on his baptism. So that's why we, we celebrate those three feasts, one, two, three. If you look at the calendar... And it's, we're celebrating that Jesus appeared in the world, which if we can't celebrate that, what can we celebrate? Does that answer your question? It does. Thank you. There you go. Hey, may all questions be so simple. God bless you. All right. Good to talk to you, John. Thanks for listening. Uh, you know, we, I think we're, we're getting through phone calls pretty quick today, so we will have more room for phone calls. Um, that uh, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Let us go to Julie from Medford Lakes, New Jersey. Are you with us, Julie? Yes, Father. Hi. Hi. What can I do for you? Uh, my question is this. Um, my grandsons are coming to my town to do wrestling mm -hmm. on Sunday at yes. the local high school. And I try to live by what you taught us about yeah. the Sabbath. And I'm just wondering if that's all right for me to attend. There will be an admission fee. And it is a Sunday. Of course, we'll all go to Mass Saturday yeah. night. But it, uh, I, I'm conflicted yeah, about whether I, this is I, okay. I would I would say this is a family event. This is this is a family event, and you know, you try not to spend money on a Sunday. If you're somewhere and going to run out of gas, you got to fill up the gas tank. You can use one of those machines that helps. But you know, we we have a flexibility about the law that 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 that, that Judaism does not. We we don't. There's certain laws that are not flexible at all, like thou shalt not commit adultery. However, the idea of of Sabbath rest. And glorifying God, uh, Sunday is a day for us as if a Sabbath, though it isn't strictly speaking a Sabbath, uh, and it's a day to glorify God by being close to your family and encouraging your grandson. I have a feeling that this this would be godly. Now, that wonderful movie, uh, uh, Chariots of Fire, they were strict Presbyterians and would not uh, race in the Olympics on a Sunday. We don't go that far. But your purpose in this is not... Uh, to distract yourself from the Lord. Your purpose in this is to draw closer to the Lord by drawing closer to your family. So I would say it's fine. Does that help, Julie? Yes, so much. Thank you, Father. God bless you and enjoy, and I hope you he too. wins. All right. Thank you God so bless. Much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Okay, bye. Let's go to Michael from Farmington, New Mexico. Are you with us, Michael? Yes, Father. Good. What can today? I do happy for you? I'm, um, yeah, happy New Year so far. So good. What can I do for you? 
I lost another sister uh, suddenly Thursday afternoon, and I've lost two sisters in the past six months. Mm-hmm. My first cousin, who was a nun down in Kentucky, <clears throat> and my daughter on the day after Christmas last year. Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. That's very hard. Thank yeah. you, Father. <clears throat> I find great comfort in the Lord and oh, in the yeah. Scripture and yeah. in the Novena. And yeah. my younger sister that had passed away back in August, uh, they talked about waiting until next summer on her birthday to spread her ashes in the mountains in Wyoming. Oh, good grief. <laughs> and now I have another sister, and... I don't know what their plans are, but in talking to my brother and yet another sister, I'm blessed with seven. Uh, I have three remaining. I'm trying to get them to understand why we cannot spread ashes. And Mm -hmm. I want to be able to do this to them and not hurt their feelings. Do you have any suggestions? It's a tough thing. What I would say is, gee, I really wish you'd bury the ashes in a place where I'd like to come and pray there. It means a lot to me. And, you know, I doubt that they'll listen to that, but, but that's what I would say. It's, it's, uh, um, it's, 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 let, let them know that this means something to you as their uncle uh, or their relative or grandparent. And, um, that really is the best one can do. Um, I would say that, that, uh, you want to do that. Um, you know, and the reason that we do that is because of the sacredness of the human body. And, um, it, it's, we live in an era when the human body is not thought of as sacred. It's thought of kind of as a, you know, a thing I can, kill if I want to. It's a thing I can misuse. I can, it's just, there's not a sacredness to it. And, you know, people say, well, I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. The devil is a pure spirit. Devil hates human flesh. Whereas God loves human flesh so much that he incarnated his only begotten son uh, in human flesh. And that's the reason that it's our reverence for the human flesh, that this is sacred. We're making a statement that it's sacred. And, you know, if they question you, well, why does the Catholic Church? Because this is sacred. Well, the earth is sacred, not as sacred as the human body. The earth is going to end. The human body, we believe, will rise from the dead. So we treat it with greater sanctity even than we treat the earth. And we're supposed to treat the earth with great respect and with stewardship. So I hope that helps a little. And I will certainly be praying for you in your in your. In your, in your loss, and I, I, I will remember you at Mass. So, Well, Drew's coming up. Talk about respecting the sanctity of all sorts of things. Don't go anywhere. 